Good morning, friends. Today's message, Have You Lost Your Saltiness? And this comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, as most of you know, I live in Branson, Missouri, which is kind of the Midwest uh, entertainment capital. All kinds of shows, all kinds of things to go to. Lots of people flock to town. Big crowds last night in Branson for the big 4th of July uh, celebration uh, down in Branson Landing right across the, on Lake Tanicomo. Um, I didn't see it, but I could sh- certainly hear it from my house. But one of the entertainers in Branson <clears throat> is a Russian comedian, uh, Yakov Smirnov. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, he talks about when he first moved to America... He talks about how amazed he was at the variety of instant products he could buy in a store. I mean, he he found powdered milk. You just add water, you got milk. There was powdered orange juice. You just add water and you have orange juice. And then he saw baby powder and he thought, what a great country. If you want a baby, just add water. Well, some people think that's how discipleship works. And I've been thinking a lot about discipleship and evangelism and mission lately. Uh, And so I find a lot of different... views on discipleship, but there are a lot of people who think basically you just kind of take a believer, add a little baptism water, and poof, you've got a fully devoted follower of Jesus, a real disciple. But you know what, friends, it takes more than water to make a disciple. I mean, disciples are made, not born. In Luke 14, Jesus was getting closer and closer uh, to the end, to the cross, and people who wanted to see a miracle or get a free meal from him were probably mobbing around. The crowd is about to become much smaller because he started setting forth the cost of discipleship, <clears throat> and it's not a very popular message. It requires total commitment. In Luke 14, Jesus gives us four very vivid images and used each one to teach a lesson about discipleship. And I'm going to number them as I read the text. And large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them, and he said, here's our text, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Mark 1. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's Mark 2. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. That's Mark 3. Or suppose the king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not sit down and consider whether he's able with his with the thousand men to oppose the one against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In Mark, 4, in Mark 4, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And then Mark 5, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, people chose uh, to follow Jesus on several different levels of intimacy. It's kind of like a, a set of uh, concentric circles. On the outside, you have the crowd. It's a big group of people who knew Jesus, who he was, uh, but they would soon be gone. I mean, today, the people in my neck of the Ozarks who express an interest in Jesus kind of represent the crowd, but they, they seldom ever gather to worship with believers. Uh, a deeper level commitment would be the congregation. These are people who attend church on a fairly re- regular basis. In other words, they congregate with other people to worship, but are not really active members of any local church. 
some of them call themselves church shoppers or church hoppers. They're kind of like a butterfly flitting from one church to another, never really committing themselves to actively serving Jesus. Now, a deeper level of commitment would be the church. I mean, this circle kind of represents those who have affiliated with a local church and have a deeper intimacy with Jesus and this body of believers. But there's a, a level deeper than that, which we would call the committed. These are the ones within the church who are really disciples. These are radical Christians. These people are sold out to Jesus, and they want people to know about Jesus. And like many other organizations, you've heard this before, about 20% of the people do about 80% of the work and give about 80% of the financial support to the church. These are the committed people. Now, the question is, which circle represents where you are today? Where would you like to be? You know, the job of a disciple is to become part of the core committed and then move out into the crowd to make more disciples. And as we study these five marks, let's note the vivid images Jesus uses and dig into the meaning. Well, the first image Jesus uses is a family. Now, I don't know, maybe you're surprised that Jesus said to be a disciple, you need to hate your family. I actually heard about one pastor who titled his message on this text, How to Hate Your Wife. Now, you may be asking yourself, doesn't he talk elsewhere about loving everyone, including your enemies? Yeah, but remember, Jesus often uses figures of speech to give his words a greater impact. He used metaphors, similes, parables, and here he simply in, in employed hyperbole. Hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration to emphasize a point. My grandmother, who raised me, I used to say, I've told you a million times to do, well, I know it's not a million times, but maybe it was half a million, I'm not sure. But uh, so to get up, don't get upset because Jesus uses hyperbole. Also, the Greek means something totally different than our English word for hate. The word is sane, which means to prefer above. To be a disciple, you must love Jesus more than you love anyone else, and that includes family members. Your love for Jesus should be so powerful that in comparison, it seems as if you hate everyone else. It's also true that sometimes your love for Jesus will, well, they'll alienate you from others, even your family. Uh, a few years ago, while teaching down at uh, Angola Prison, uh, a former Muslim came to know Jesus and was baptized. And you know, talking to him, it's a tough decision for him to make because he knew the moment he became a Christ follower, his family would just disown him. They'd even have a funeral for him and consider him to be dead. He had to make a hard choice, but he followed Jesus, even though his family opposed it and opposed him. See, if you truly follow the Lord, you will not have to look for people to ridicule you or oppose you. They'll find you, and they might actually be family members. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, friends, when God calls you, you have to make some difficult decisions at times, and sometimes your family is not going to jump up and down and rejoice over your choices. And that's a mark of a true disciple. The second image Jesus uses is a cross. See, a real disciple is someone who carries his cross. Now, there was a hymn that I remember learning when I was a little kid <clears throat> going to St. John's in Seward, Nebraska. It had a line in there that said, The cross I bear. And I thought they were singing about a cross-eyed bear named Gladly. You know that one, Gladly, the cross-eyed bear. Well, that's a joke. Think about it. I mean, many Christ followers are just as confused today about what it means to carry a cross. 
Now, I've heard some people say to me, I have migraine headaches, but I guess it's just a cross I must bear. Or somebody, uh, you know, they take off their shoe one time and show me a big, ugly toe. They said, I've got, I got an ingrown toenail, but I guess it's just a cross I bear. And I said, why don't you have that nasty thing worked on by a doctor? See, the cross is not a headache. It's not an ingrown toenail. It's not a pesty neighbor or relative or whatever. I mean, today the image of the cross has lost its horror. The true message of the cross is death. Today, sadly, the cross has become kind of benign. It's just a harmless piece of jewelry that people wear. And in Jesus' time, it was a horrible, agonizing, torturous mode of execution. It was the noose. It was the electric chair. It was the lethal injection of his day. In the time of Jesus, when you saw someone carrying a cross, it meant only one thing. That person was as good as dead. Some of you may remember a movie a number of years ago. It was called Dead Man Walking. It was a story that Sister Helen Prejean wrote. And when a death row prisoner is walking from his cell to the place to be executed, the other prisoners start chanting, Dead Man Walking, Dead Man Walking. He's alive and walking, but he's as good as dead. And, you know, this is a perfect description of what Jesus meant when he spoke of a disciple carrying his cross. I mean, we're dead people. We should just start acting like a dead person. See, Paul understood what it meant to carry a cross. In Galatians, there are three dynamite verses about what it means to carry your cross. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. And then Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, friends, that means there is nothing the world has to offer you that interests you. It's as if the world is dead to you and you are dead to the world. You know, one of the really classic books on discipleship, I remember reading it a long time ago, is The Cost of Discipleship, and maybe you read that too. It's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II, and because he opposed Hitler and the Nazis, he was imprisoned where he died before the war ended. But listen to what he wrote. He wrote, The cross is laid on every Christ follower. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, friends, in many ways, a dead man is set free. You will not be truly liberated until you understand what it is to be crucified with Christ. Well, the next image is a tower. Uh, Jesus presents an image of a guy who's building this big tower, big tall building, uh, but before he begins the construction, he has to count the cost to see if he has enough resources, including money, to finish the job. So that's the cost of discipleship, not the cost of salvation. Before you embark on the Christian life, if you stop to ask, do I have enough to finish? Well, the answer is always no. It's not our resources that are necessary. God provides us all we need. I mean, God is the builder who finishes the job called salvation. In Philippians 1, Paul said, Be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. So Jesus is talking about the cost of total commitment. But it's better to think in terms of the value instead of the cost. A good finish as a disciple is the key. Now, a lot of backslidden Christ followers may go to heaven when they die, but they're not finishing well. 
In verse 29, Jesus spoke about the man who was not able to finish. And Jesus says, everyone will look at the uncompleted project and ridicule the one who didn't finish. Now, i got to be honest with you, I'm sometimes haunted by those words because I I don't want to become a spiritual dropout. The older I get, the more I realize there can never be any coasting in the Christian life. There's no such thing as a spiritual retirement. I mean, the pages of the Bible... Pages of the Bible are littered with great men and women who didn't finish well. I mean, Noah and his family were saved from the flood, but poor Noah ended up a drunken man who got naked and cursed his son. I mean, Solomon, smartest man in history, didn't finish well. I mean, all of these wives turned his heart. So the question is, are you going to finish well? Now, I've been around long enough to know some folks who used to be pretty faithful servants, real disciples, but they kind of dropped out. Yeah, they kind of still attend sometimes. I suppose they'll go to heaven when they die. That's not for me to judge. But unless something changes, they're just not going to finish strong. Now, friends, the good news is you are not finished yet. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. You can still finish well. The finish line is still ahead. But are you sitting on the track? Are you dragging yourself across the finish line? Or are you summoning God's strength so you can sprint across that finish line? Maybe you've heard of Billy Sunday. He, Billy Sunday was the Billy Graham of his generation. He was a, a former professional baseball player, but he once said, stopping at third adds no more to the score than striking out. It doesn't matter how well you start if you fail to finish. Well, the next image is a war. And here Jesus describes two kings. One is outnumbered, so he wisely approaches the stronger king and makes peace before the battle ever begins. Now, you and I are one of the kings, and God is the other one. Guess which one we are? Well, because we can never win against God, we must surrender to him. In Jesus' time, a surrendering king could be made into a slave of the opposing king. So it required great humility to bow down and ask for terms of peace. And it takes humility today to surrender to Jesus. You can't be a disciple unless you're willing to give up control of your life to him. And that's hard to do, because none of us really wants to give up. See, as long as you think you're strong enough to save yourself, you won't surrender to Jesus. It's only when you give up and realize you're hopelessly lost that Jesus can come and rescue you. So I ask, I mean, have you ever come to a place in your life where you have surrendered everything you have and everything you are to Jesus? I think real discipleship is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I give up. I give up control of my life. I think one of the reasons the book of Psalms speaks of lifting your hands in praise and worship is because the lifting of hands has always been a gesture of surrender. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Now, I'm not asking if you were a Christian. I found I have to surrender to Jesus often. I have to do it every day. I mean, maybe you need to do what I do on a regular basis. Sometimes when I sit in my office, I kind of raise my hands and I just say, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And finally, Jesus used the image of salt. Stay pure to preserve goodness. See, salt was valuable during Jesus' time. Roman soldiers were paid with salt rations. The Latin phrase solarium argentums is where we get our word salary. I mean, even today we speak of someone who is not worth their salt. In Jesus' time, the greatest value of salt was in its use as a preservative. Since they didn't have any way to refrigerate meat, salt would be applied to fresh meat to prevent the meat from rotting. See, the salt creates a chemical reaction that slows down the process of decay. It retards corruption. So as a consequence, it preserved the goodness of the meat. 
I think this is why Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, let's be honest. We live in a nation suffering from moral decay at an alarming rate these days. Our society sometimes just seems rottener by the day. And like salt, we need to come. We must come into contact with our corrupting culture to slow down the process. As salt, our job is to preserve the goodness that still exists in our culture. And if we don't speak out against moral evil, we have lost our saltiness. Now, that kind of activity is not going to make us popular. Being salt will certainly not make us popular. I mean, have you ever noticed how salt stings when it gets in a wound? Salt irritates, but in addition to being a preservative, it's also an antiseptic, and our society needs a pretty good cleaning. We must be salt in our corrupting world. If we don't speak up against evil, our nation will become even more perverse than it is now. But the problem Jesus identified is that some people have lost their saltiness, and yet I have read that pure salt never loses its saltiness. A salt crystal is as salty as today as it was 2,000 years ago. Let me say it again. Pure salt never loses its saltiness. That's why Jesus said we must remain pure. See, the salt used in the time of Jesus was not mined. It came from the Dead Sea. When the water evaporated, it just leaves salt behind. But the salt was sometimes so mixed with other minerals that although it looked like salt and poured like salt, it was not salty. When it was placed on food, it was tasteless. When it was applied to fresh meat, the meat rotted. And Jesus warned that the spiritual condition that exists when our lives are not morally pure. When we allow impure thoughts and impure behavior to become mixed in our personality, we lose our saltiness. And Jesus posed the question, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Well, in his day, there was no chemical process to make unsalty salt salty again. The only thing to do with it was to put it on the road and use it for gravel. And sadly, many believers live such impure lives that they've lost their sense of saltiness in a rotting world. Today, there's a simple chemical process that can restore unsalty salt to pure salt, but that process was unknown during Jesus' day. So what was impossible for man is possible for God. If you've lost your saltiness, God can make you pure again. His blood can make you pure, but his word keeps you pure. We would be dangerous disciples in this world, but too many believers are harmless to the devil's work. Too many Christians are like a dog a friend of mine told me about. Uh, one day he walked into an old country store and saw a sign just inside that, that read, Danger, beware of dog. Well, my friend looked around cautiously, but all he saw was some old hound curled up on the floor sound asleep. He said to the owner, That dog doesn't look dangerous to me. The owner said, Well, folks kept tripping over him, so that's why I put up the sign. Well, are you a real disciple? Do you want to move from being in the congregation into the church? Do you need to move from the church into the core of committed disciples? Do you love Jesus more than anything else, even your family? Are you a dead man walking, carrying your cross? Are you committed to finishing strong? Are you constantly surrendering everything you have to him? Are you willing to stay pure so that you can be salt in a rotting world? You know, Jesus is looking for a few good people. The humble, the pure, the dead, the committed. Will you decide today to move from being a mere believer and make being a fully devoted follower of Jesus your goal? Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.